News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the cruise lines are quite surprised by the length of this uh, extended suspension of cruise activity in Canada, particularly given uh, comments from the government they expect everyone to be vaccinated who wants to be vaccinated by September. I don't know how cruise lines can be that surprised with what's going on. I mean, that's Barry Penner with the Cruise Line International Association reacting to the news that Transport Canada has banned cruises through next February. It's one of the most significant decisions that Transport Canada has made since the beginning of the pandemic. And remember, way back at the beginning, how huge of an issue cruise ships and cruise lines were with people kind of stranded on those cruise ships and the virus circulating and breaking and people having to quarantine there and having trouble getting home. That was a huge story. But economically, what does this mean for British Columbia to not have that cruise ship industry returning until at least after February of next year? Joining us now is Walt Judas, the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. Good morning, Walt. Good morning, Simi. Now, is this something that you were surprised with or did you think it was this is coming? Well, I don't think anybody was really surprised. As Mr. Penner suggested, perhaps it was um, not expected that it would this ban would take effect through till next year. There was likely some hope that by the end of this year or toward the end of this year, we might see some cruises in British Columbia. But the length of time, I'm sure, took a few off guard. On the other hand, nobody was really surprised by the move. By Transport Canada. Is, do you think Canadians are ready to get back on a cruise ship, you know, say in, dis- in the month of December? Well, as Mr. Penner again alluded to in the clip that you just played, I think there was some confidence that if people were vaccinated, there was herd immunity, perhaps things in place like rapid testing, that people would feel more confident. I know there are some limited cruises that are taking place in places like Europe. So I think as you build that confidence and restore confidence, people want to travel again. There would have been an element, sure, that would have gotten on a cruise ship, which, as we know, is contained. But there are ways to control uh, where people go or what people do to a degree. So I think, yes, to some people might have been confident. Others would have suggested, no, let's wait till next year or the years beyond before we really feel like we want to go cruising again. Now, what kind of impact is this going to have, though, on the tourism sector? Because we know how important the cruise ship industry was to or had been right up until the pandemic. Yeah, it'll be significant. It's over a $2 billion sector for BC's visitor economy. Each cruise ship that comes into port in Vancouver is worth over $3 million. And it's particularly significant to all of the businesses that service the cruise sector, of course, all of the suppliers. So there's a huge ecosystem built around cruise. But also, as you know, you've seen it in Gastown. Many businesses have shuttered, and that's largely because they rely on cruise and international visitors to sustain them for the whole year. While cruise is about six months of the year here, it's lucrative. It generates a lot of income for restaurants, hotels, attractions, transportation companies, retail. So the hit to Vancouver and British Columbia is significant, not to mention that a lot of people come here for the first time to get on board a ship from Vancouver to Alaska or in Victoria. 
they discover BC and want to come back and tell their friends about it and take trips elsewhere in the province. So it's a ripple effect, to be sure. Is the industry ready, do you think, to greet people once again? Like, have there been changes with how they do things? No question. I can't speak for the cruise line specifically, but I have seen some of the plans that they've put in place to uh, ensure health and safety of people. They've had to double down on many of the safety measures they already had. But given what they learned uh, in the early part of the pandemic, they have really, really taken this to heart. And I think they were ready to welcome people on board cruises when the time was right. So I give the cruise lines credit from what I can see. They've, uh, they've stepped up to the plate, but as have other sectors within tourism. Everybody has extensive health and safety protocols in place to be able to welcome visitors at any time. What about the hotel industry here in Vancouver? We still have a lot of hotels closed. Is that going to change, do you think, anytime soon? I really wish I could say yes. But uh, the prospects don't look very good for that sector, as well as others. Hotels have absolutely been decimated. The occupancy levels, the rate levels have plummeted. Vancouver and Victoria, some of the biggest centers, have been hardest hit. And until we start to see international travel again or domestic travel, uh, meetings and events taking place, the sector will continue to suffer, no question. So is the industry ready, though, to greet people, do you think? I know a lot of people are very impatient to kind of get this vaccine, get things kind of back to normal. But do you think that automatically means a return to traveling? Well, to some degree, it'll take a while to ramp up again. I think um, we had initially anticipated it it would be a 12 to 18 month scenario before travel resumed to normal levels. But it's more like three to five years. That said, Many businesses have downscaled. Some are still closed. It takes a while to ramp up again to get employees back to work. A lot of those employees have left to join other sectors. They'll be difficult to recruit back to tourism. So it will take a while before things pick up and and, uh, we're ready to welcome visitors. At the same time, I think the industry is really anxious to move forward with a restart plan of some kind, to work together with government to look at the criteria by which travel can resume. Does that mean herd immunity? Is it rapid testing? Is it contact tracing? What are the steps that are necessary so that we can eventually start to open travel within the province, then domestically, and ultimately internationally? But For now, we are following PHO orders. We have supported the directives. But in order to get this industry back on track, we have to get people moving. All right. Walt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Walt Judas is the CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of BC. So hard hit. And now we're talking about the cruise ship ban, which has been extended by Transport Canada until at least the end of next February. So into 2022, even with the vaccination schedule that we have, it it does beg the question, if, you know, you're vaccinated, are you ready to get back on a cruise ship and go for a cruise? And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who would say yes. You can email me, simi at cknw.com. But I was also reminded when Walt was talking there about the spinoffs of having the cruise ship industry so big here in the province. It's a sector worth more than $2 billion, he said. Each cruise ship 
brings to the city more than $3 million in economic spinoffs. He mentioned Gastown. My high school job was working at a souvenir shop in Gastown. I worked there for about two or three years, actually. And yeah, I, I can attest to that. Every time we knew a cruise ship docked, we knew because it there would be like a huge crowd of people that would suddenly show up in the store just buying up souvenirs like crazy. So yeah, my heart goes out to a lot of those uh, shops down there because the impact is definitely being felt here with no cruise ships now until at least February of 2022. This is, of course, Black History Month, and it's been really refreshing and nice to see how many different um, educational opportunities there are out there, just more widely available, I feel like, than we have ever seen before. And that's good. We need, there's a lot we need to learn about this because it's a part of our history that has been uh, largely ignored, I would say, in the past. So let's talk to the chair of the board of the National Congress of Black Women Foundation, Lolly Bennett, about what's going on this year. Lolly, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Hello. Uh, talk, let's talk about Black History Month. Are you pleased with how it's been going, the amount of attention that it's receiving this year? I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing, and I don't mean online. I just see in, as well as online, I just see a lot of um, pride. To me, people look a little more, people of color look a little more open and engaging and uh, proud. Yeah. I think lots of things have come to light, and uh, it's made a huge difference in how we, uh, as a community, present ourselves to the world. What are some of the things that you think people should check out for Black History Month? There are some, some educational opportunities that they should check out. Well, there's lots of things going on, and I, you know, I, thank goodness I can't keep track of all of them, and it never used to be that way. So I think that um, just going online and looking at what's happening, I can tell you what we're doing, uh, the Congress. Every year we do something, and we do several things. Um, uh, Anti-black racism in schools has been a focus of ours for over a decade, so it's not a new conversation for us. Uh, We work closely with Beth Applewhite at the Burnaby School District and James Morton, and Kenneth Headley, and uh, their their workshop symposium started very small, and now they're engaging with five high schools, and they all get together, not this year, of course, but they all get together, and it's uh, uh, they set the platform on the students. That's great. The agenda. So that's been really successful. So Beth has something online uh, this year, uh, limited capacity, I think, because of the online platform forum, but that's something that goes on every year and something we've been involved with for more than a decade. Um, uh, Last year, we were in partnership with the Maritime Museum with uh, a lovely exhibit uh, called Dressed in Black, The Journey. And little did we know uh, that we were kicking off a great partnership because uh, looking back at that exhibit, what exactly were we saying in the exhibit Um, And I think one of the focuses for the Congress is education. It's been our major focus. But I think in our discussions, we were uh, attempting to uh, change the imagery. Uh, You know, I don't want to see a terrified face in tattered clothing every Mm -hmm. single February. I don't want that to be the image. Uh, Long before all of that, you know... uh, 
that's only a small portion. It's a significant portion. Uh, I'm speaking of slavery and those types of injustice. But, you know, we're very proud uh, race of people, well-dressed, well-tailored, well-educated. Um, so this year we thought, you know, let's really make a concerted effort to change the narrative. And the uh, Maritime Museum was on board. So we have a, a virtual workshop, and we've got three uh, incredible educators joining the panel. Oh. Um, um, so Chantelle Gibson, for one, I'm not sure if any, if anyone knows who Chantelle is. Uh, they should if they don't. Chantelle Gibson is an educator, uh, an artist. She's an award-winning um, artist living in Vancouver. She currently has a huge piece at the Bellsburg on Hastings Street, has images in the VAG. Oh. She's the first woman of color to have art in the Senate in Ottawa. That's amazing. Lolly, where like where can people go to find out more information very quickly? Is there a website that they could check out or uh well we have a website. Okay. Um uh, ncbwf.org. Okay. And certainly they can go to the Maritime Museum's website. And that's a great idea. Check all that out too. Uh, Lolly, thank you so much for yeah. your time. My pleasure. The final report on anti-Indigenous racism in healthcare here in BC has uncovered some pretty staggering findings. One of them, Indigenous people in BC are 75% more likely to end up in the emergency room than a non-Indigenous person. They're also less likely to have access to prenatal care and even screening for cancer. Now, former uh, judge and, of course, former Children's Representative Mary Ellen Turpel-Lafon was appointed to lead the investigation that led to this report. She joins us now to talk about this. She's a UBC law professor and director of the Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at the Peter Allard School of Law. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me. What was it like digging into this for you? Uh, Well, it was um, quite surprising. I mean, obviously, I've worked with big social serving systems like the child welfare system, and I've looked at um, and explored, you know, over a long period of time, the impact that has on Indigenous people. And when I came to the healthcare system, I assumed it being a social care system, that it would be a more positive set of outcomes and more positive set of findings. I'd heard a lot of anecdotal complaints. But the report I released yesterday looked at the data, and the data fully backs up and reinforces what First Nations MAT had said to me in the report that I put out in November about racism in the healthcare system. It sounds then like it surprised even you. It surprised me because I thought we were making more progress. And when I found things like, um, you know, the fact that First Nations in particular have no choice but to rely on the emergency department because the primary care um, improvements in the last number of years haven't haven't substantially improved their connection to primary care. That concerned me. And the findings about women, and in particular the fact that First Nations women at all stages of life, um, you know, particularly the reproductive and menopausal periods, do not get the health care that they need. And so the fact that there's, you know, First Nations moms coming to hospitals with no prenatal care hmm. to an emergency department to deliver an infant, it's kind of shocking. And I it is. thought it was more like really sort of, you know, once once to every 10 years sort of thing and found out that it's um, actually we're at great risk for those 
poor services at the prenatal and the early years. So, yeah, the information was quite shocking, but does reinforce the findings, which is the healthcare system is not serving um, Indigenous people in BC effectively. One of the big stats is the, that one that I talked about, Indigenous people, 75% more likely to end up in the emergency room. What leads to that? Is that lack of primary care, lack of, you know, first point of contact? It's the inadequacy of the primary care system, and the primary care system is inadequate for a couple of reasons. One, it's not there for First Nations, MAT, especially for First Nations. And um, secondly, they, they have experienced racism at the point of care consistently, often racism connected to urgent care. Um, and so they're not getting continuum of care. There's poor access. Then you get to healthcare avoidance because the system has been so terrible. And this is really important because the report yesterday looked at things like cancer screening. Like we need routine cancer screening mm-hmm. because if you have early detection, you can have you know treatment and prevention. So just taking women as an example, you know, they're only getting, for instance, pap smear or cervical uh, cancer screening at the rate of 68% of other women yet they have 1.6 times higher level of cervical cancer. So that's like one of those easy facts where you're like, okay, we've got to get a screening program here, but who does screening? Family docs or clinics that see people regularly, people who don't get attached regularly to healthcare do not get routine screening. So again, I'm really seeing how what um, First Nations and Métis people told me about the racism at the point of care, the lack of cultural safety, then means all across the system, we end up seeing poor access and we then have a higher disease burden for Indigenous people. And Indigenous people are kind of getting blamed for this health issue, which is in of itself a form of racism. So that was a big message from me yesterday was, we need to stop the racism. Yeah. We need to stop the blaming. That prenatal care one certainly hit home for me in particular because of that story just in the last week or so uh, up in Kitimat the young woman who had a stillbirth and turned away from the hospital in Kitimat. It almost perfectly illustrates what you're talking about in this report. Yeah, that was tragic. And I, you know, really send my condolences to the mom and family. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that in the Northern Health region, they're going to look at it because something, something very troubling happened there when, you know, she came to Kitimat Hospital, ended up outside the hospital in um, emergency transport to come back and not be admitted and then ended up having to drive in the family vehicle to another hospital. And in my investigation of racism in healthcare, I did get a lot of complaints from Northern British Columbia about transportation for needed medical services, including who gets transported from the north down to Vancouver. But I would just say that the issues of racism and lack of access, it's not just a northern and remote issue. This is also an issue in the Van Coastal, Providence, you know, and Fraser mm-hmm. regions as well. So it's a, it's, it's a lower mainland issue as much as it is a northern issue. So what do you hope comes out of this report then? How can we start to change? Well, I think we have, um, you know, I made these... 23 recommendations in the report I brought out in November. This was the data. I think it's important just to know that, you know, data is data. It speaks very clearly about patterns and issues. And so after this combination of like thorough examination of the system, you know, this isn't an advocacy document. It's just an evidence document. So what I'm happy about is that in the health professions, uh, it's become very clear in the hospital administration side and health authority side 
Um, everyone has identified that this racism is present and we have to work on it, eliminate it. But I would like to see measurable progress. And I'm, you know, I'm glad Minister Dix has appointed some new leadership and that the recommendations are being considered and changes are being made. So these are, these are positive developments. But I also think we're going to have to watch it because I want to see some of these outcomes change. And, you know, it's just it's it's not a positive report yesterday, but these these measures and outcomes can change if we actually do the work on our system and on our on our public health system so that, in fact, we do eliminate this racism. Well, thank you for your time and talking to us about it this morning. Thank you for having me. It's Mary Ellen Terpel Lafon, UBC Law Professor, Director of the Residential School History and Dialogue Centre at the Peter Allard School of Law. And of course, you remember her from her time as children's representative here in BC. What an amazing job she did with that. Now she's turned her attention to anti-Indigenous racism in the healthcare system. Oh, we've been looking forward to talking about this all morning long. Now, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have talked a lot about supporting local businesses. We feel very passionate about that here on the show. Local businesses are run by people who live here, work here, and most importantly as well, they give back to their own community. And we have a great example of that this morning. Now, earlier in the week, uh, we were talking with Gord McDonald, as we do every morning. And we mentioned that Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House really needed some help for their seniors. They were hoping that you would take the time to send a Valentine's Day card to the seniors there to just let them know that people are thinking of them. They were hoping to get a thousand cards. They have now upwardly revised that estimate to hoping to get 2000 cards. But one local business is going out and doing a whole lot more because they heard about it right here on the show. Joining us is Daniel Poncelet, the master chocolatier at Daniel Chocolates. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Simi. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we have to say thank you so much. So tell me, what are you going to be doing for the seniors at Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House? Uh, This time we're going to give them 1,000 chocolate bars, those little bars that um, we made specially for them. Um, And I must say that we have been giving chocolates to dead organizations for the last uh, poof, 25, 30 years, I think, with a little hiccup since 2005 or something like that. But I was happy that the, uh, to give them again because it's a super organization. It really is. So did you, when you heard this, did you think, oh, we can do this, we can help make the Seniors Day? Of course we did right away. We say, oh, yeah, we know them, let's do it. So we didn't know what to do exactly, and we say, okay, let's do the um, let's let's do a bar because they are individually wrapped, so it's food safe and uh, easy to handle for for the staff and for anybody. You're going to give them a thousand chocolate bars. So are those arriving today? Arriving? Uh, yes, yes, at twelve o'clock. Oh, this is so special, Daniel. What a way to make their time. Uh, does it, did it mean something special to you to help out with the seniors there in particular, like that particular organization? Uh, yes, for several reasons. The first one is I'm not that young anymore. Let's <laughs> face <laughs> <laughs> the reality of life. Um, and actually, as I said, it's a very, very nice organization and uh, that was the reason why we gave chocolates. Actually, we were giving chocolates at Easter every year yeah. to them. So um, it's, it was a very easy decision. 
Um, was it all hands do. on deck? Was it all like you had to get a thousand bars? You're just going to whip those up. That must take a lot of people. Um, not really, because uh, I must say that those bars are machine wrapped. So um, uh, it, it's done rather quickly. Oh, nice. Okay, so you're going to hand this over today. And Daniel, we have to tell people, where can people buy your chocolates to support your great local business? Oh, thank you. Well, we have uh, we have our store on Robson Street since... Poof, Long time. 1985, I think, yes, yeah. 1985. Um, and we have the factory store that is going that is becoming extremely popular because... People order online and pick up at the store, the factory on 7th and, uh, and Quebec. Oh, I know that one. What's your website, Daniel? Well, it's www.danielchocolates.com. We will very check easy. that out. It's very easy. Thank you so much. And listen, thank you for helping out. We love it. Thank you, Simi, for having me. And uh, I wish you a very good day. A good day to you, too. And again, great job for Daniel Chocolates. They are dropping off a 1,000 chocolate bars to the seniors at Mount Pleasant Neighborhood House to help them celebrate Valentine's Day. Let's talk about the jobs picture in Canada this morning because Statistics Canada has released the January numbers and they are not great. Overall, for the country, more than 200,000 Canadians were out of work, the majority of those in Ontario and Quebec. So what was the picture for BC? Well, about steady, I guess you could say, if you put the glass half full um, attitude towards it, we gained 2,800 jobs in the month of January. Let's talk more about all of this now. Ravi Kalan joins us, the Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. Are you disappointed by those numbers? Uh, I'm not disappointed by the numbers. Uh, you know, we uh, are at about 99% of where of the jobs that we had lost at pre-pandemic levels. And so we know from here uh, that the uh, the gains uh, during the pandemic will be slightly up, up or slightly down. I mean, we're in the middle of the second wave. And, and, uh, and so for us, the numbers show that our uh, economy continues to be resilient. Where are the areas where we're still hurting? Well, it won't be a surprise to your listeners. Uh, you know, uh, tourism and, and hospitality uh, continue to be a challenge. Uh, you know, I think as long as we uh, are in this pandemic and we're putting measures in to p- keep people safe, uh, we're going to continue to see pressures uh, in those two sectors. Uh, some sectors are, are obviously doing quite well. Um, uh, tech and, uh, you know, construction is starting to pick up and manufacturing is uh, is doing quite well. So, but hospitality and tourism continue to be a challenge. Yeah, I did notice that, that there were some bright spots for the BC economy, tech in particular. What do you attribute that to? And is there more that we could be doing? Well, there's there's uh, so many things happening there, but in particular, you're starting to see a whole shift of uh, people's consumer buying habits to shift to online. Uh, a lot of people now are ordering their groceries online, ordering their food online, uh, and uh, and so we know that there, this is not a, a short-term thing. Uh, things that we thought were going to take five to seven years uh, are happening in one, and that pace is probably not going to slow down after the pandemic. You know, Simi, yesterday we announced, or two days ago we announced, $12 million for small businesses uh, to get support to set up their online shops, to set up their e-commerce. We've seen already, just in 24 hours, huge pickup of that program. So it shows us that that's where things are going, and uh, we need to be there to support the small and medium businesses in that transition. And what kind of huge pickup? What are we talking about? 
Well, in the first uh, six hours of the program being launched, we already had 10% of the spots uh, taken up. Uh, and uh, and that was just in the first evening of uh, us announcing it. And so we suspect that that program will be oversubscribed. Uh, we know uh, we launched a digital bootcamp program, which was about $14 million uh, a few months ago, uh, and that was way oversubscribed. And so there's a real sense uh, from our small and medium-sized businesses that they need to go there and uh, and they need to go there quick. Uh, is there is it time then to talk about perhaps offering uh, retraining to people who want it and more of that? If the jobs aren't going to come back in the tourism industry, are there other jobs for those people? Uh, this is exactly the time to, to have those conversations. Uh, today, we're uh, announcing uh, up to 80 organizations that will be doing uh, retraining uh, opportunities for, for people that have been displaced in the, in the workforce. So we reached out to employers and said, what kind of jobs would you need? And we're launching a whole host of programs for reskilling and retraining. Uh, it's, it's critically important that that be a focus. I think the other piece that you know uh, concerns me, um, and it's kind of always been there, um, is you know, we're seeing about two to four uh, percent higher unemployment for uh, Indigenous communities, for Black people of color, uh, and so it shows you that there's a real an- inequity uh, in how the pandemic has affected uh, BC. So the retraining, which is great, how would that work then? Who have you figured out who is eligible for it and where those jobs would be? Yeah, well, the, the 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 release will go a little bit later today, but. We have uh, 80 organizations that will be doing uh, different types of training. There will be uh, some focus on Indigenous community with tech, uh, some focused on uh, manufacturing where there's opportunities for people to come in and both upskill and to learn brand new skills. Um, But this is going to be a focus for us for in the coming years because we have to. We have to ensure that our, our people have the skills for the future. Do you think some of these changes are permanent? You know, a year ago we were thinking, oh, it's only temporary. It's only three months or it's only six months. But some of what we're doing now, these jobs, these programs, do you think this is just the way it's going to be? Well, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there uh, for everyone. Um, and what I would say is that the things that we didn't think would happen in one year are happening. I mean, you look at telehealth uh, and how we're, uh, you know, now you can see your doctor from your own living yeah. room. Um, and you look at the courts, uh, even the government and how we've been innovative around the court system to keep uh, the court system going using online services. So this is, uh, I don't see this slowing down. And so uh, innovation is going to be key for us in, uh, in economic recovery. And so uh, it's going to be a high focus. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me, Simi. Talk soon. Yep, that's Ravi Kalon, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. So an announcement coming later today on retraining opportunities for people. We've talked to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade about this too, that uh, the surveys that they have done repeatedly have shown how so many companies out there have pivoted to digital, perhaps a much greater you know, presence on the internet that maybe they didn't have it before, so they had to create it. They had to suddenly be able to allow people to buy their product online where they hadn't done that before. So that is where you're actually seeing the growth now in British Columbia jobs in particular. Uh, And that is something they're going to see more of moving forward. I don't know how you can take that away from people. It was kind of like the alcohol delivery, right? When things go back to normal, people are saying, what do you mean you're not going to deliver my alcohol anymore? People like that kind of stuff. It's like going to the doctor, being able to, instead of going to the doctor, talking to them on the phone. I had a doctor's appointment last week, talked to my doctor on the phone. And after I was all done and it was so quick and so efficient, it was five minutes, boom, done. And I thought, 
Why didn't we ever do more of that before? Think of the efficiencies that we could have if we could just have done it that way before. Some of this, definitely here to stay. Now, we've all been asked repeatedly to have a stay-at-home Super Bowl Sunday. Understandable, of course, but it is the last thing that restaurant owners really needed right now, that industry continuing to struggle. Well, Donnelly Group operates around a dozen popular restaurants in Vancouver. They have not been immune to the effects of this pandemic, recently closing their Blackbird Public House on Dunsmere for good. So what comes next for them? Joining us is Jeff Donnelly, the president of the Donnelly Group. Jeff, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. So for good, there was there no chance of having that restaurant reopen when things had kind of passed or gotten better? Um, I don't think so. Uh, not in that situation. I mean, it was just going to be a while. I think um, we're going to try to focus on a few of the ones that uh, we know will come back, um, maybe be a little leaner as a company when we do. Um, yeah, it was just, it, and it was kind of an unfortunate situation. Um, you know, some, it, this, the, most of the focus was on the landlords when the government came up with their sort of subsidies. And if the landlords wanted to play ball and apply for the subsidies, they could. And if they didn't, they didn't. So um, a lot of the restaurant owners, a lot of people in our industry were kind of left out in the cold. What has worked, though, for you as a restaurant group? I'm sure you've done a lot of pivoting and a lot of trying new things, but you said there's some places that have been successful. What's been the key there? You know, um, what we've found, to be honest, has been um, location has been the key. So, you know, uh, we have some quite a few locations uh, right downtown in the business core. And, um, you know, you just those are are nearly impossible. It's just no one down there. People haven't gone back to work. And so uh, the locations in the um, neighborhoods seem to be doing okay. I mean, people are coming, they're visiting them. And that's, you know, where the government's helped us out and they've helped us out with some rent subsidies and some wage subsidies. So even though we might be doing, you know, 50% of the business that we generally do, we're not, you know, we're not losing money and it's not going to cause shutdowns. So for us, we've really just found um, if, you're in a, if you're in a neighborhood location where people can, can walk to, it seems to be working. That's so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. h- how concerned are you about this Sunday? I mean, uh, it was, we, we were expecting something and, and after New Year's Eve, I think um, everyone was, everyone, no one's shocked anymore. Um, you know, we, we, we as an industry, we, we don't believe that uh, there's been enough data. We don't, we believe that we're, we've been, um, we're the safest places to go out. Um, we understand that, uh you know, there was a, a huge spike when restaurants and bars started closing at 10 p.m. And yeah. people started lining up at the liquor stores at 10 p.m. to go to house parties where there's no contact tracing. I mean, we, we know that as an industry, we've been responsible. And um, there's, a, you know, very, very trace amounts um, traced back to to our venues. So, um, you know, when, when they said, you know, try to stay home for the Super Bowl, we understand that as well. We we weren't expecting a big day, you know. Right. Are you doing anything though? Like, will there be people? Do you think coming in for Super Bowl? Maybe they're all living in the same household. Yeah, I believe so. You know, I mean, people there there are people still going out. You know, um, still sitting together, still you know safely wearing their masks to their table, and you know there there are really safe places to go and um, you know to socialize and to be outside of their to be outside of their homes. I mean, it's been a crazy time for everyone. I think people are looking forward to something like this. 
but the you know the bars and restaurants aren't just aren't going to be having the big parties that they generally have every year. Maybe they'll save it for next year. How big of a deal is it? Like Super Bowl Sunday and let's say St. Patrick's Day, those two events in your industry. How big is that? Well, they're big. You know, um, it's. It, 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 it's a kind of an event that can make a month for you, you know, and it's in such an industry where, you know, margins are so small and, uh, you know, our particularly us, we're, we're sort of a value driven, you know, and uh, when you have big days like that and make big weeks, it turn into a decent month. So, um, you know, we're just, again, we're, we're not going to have a St. Patrick's day party this year. That just absolutely wouldn't make sense. And, right. And we, we agree, you know, um, something like Super Bowl. I still hope people, you know, from the same household can go out, sit down on the table and, and enjoy it. You know, I, I believe that they can do it safely. And it's much more safe than having a party at your home. People just need to know that. Yeah. What is your message then to health officials, Jeff, as we get ready to hear from them this morning? Um, I guess I'd say that uh, it's what we've been saying the whole time as an industry is it's safer to go out into um, a controlled environment than it is for people to have to um, settle on, frankly, on uh, getting together in, in their homes. It's safer to go to our restaurants. It's safer to go to our bars than it is to go to their homes. You know, nightclubs aren't open and we don't expect that to happen. We're talking about um, safe environments where you walk in with masks and, you know, they're obviously being sanitized and, um, you know, we're doing contact tracing we believe that that's the safest environment for someone to go out who's going to socialize, mm-hmm. not to go to house parties, you know, not to be, right. you know, with people that you don't understand fraternizing indoors. You know, we've got more ventilated environments. We just believe that the, the data has always shown that it's been safer. Right. And um, I, would, I would say continue to support, you know, your local guys. Continue to support people from Vancouver, support people that have, you know, come up here and... Um, yeah, also okay. enjoy the Super Bowl. Thank you very much, Jeff. Listen, good luck. Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's Jeff Donnelly, the president of the Donnelly Group. They have about a dozen popular restaurants around. They said the ones that are in neighborhoods, though, doing better than the ones downtown. No surprise there. Well, the murder of 78-year-old Usha Singh has put the spotlight back on all of the issues connected to the homeless encampment in Strathcona Park. One of the suspects was arrested there, and police say they faced open hostility and difficulty from park residents when they tried to take him into custody. So we thought, let's talk about this. We've heard from, you know, the city of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, the mayor, was on with Linda Steele yesterday. Joining us now is Attorney General David Eby about where we are in the process of trying to fix that situation. Thank you for being here this morning. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Were you concerned when you heard about that news this week? Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, what a, a horrific uh, set of allegations uh, for Vancouverites uh, to wake up to and uh, to hear about the loss of a life of somebody who is at home. Uh, and, you know, as uh, Attorney General, uh, I can't go into the details of the specific allegations, but what I can say is, you know, the tragedies and the harm and uh, so on, you know, every day that we go that we don't have one of these horrible stories about a fire or someone getting burned or somebody overdosing or tents being flooded, you know, uh, is, is I breathe a sigh of relief because these encampments are not safe. They're not safe for the people who live in them. Uh, they create 
profound feelings of insecurity for the people who live next to them. Um, and there are a lot of people who are very vulnerable and very sick in the site, and it, we know that that attracts predators as well. And it's obviously a very difficult area for police as well because we can't arrest our way out of homelessness. So it's an incredibly complex and difficult and terrible situation, which is why we have to move as quickly as possible to decamp the site. Right. So the other hat that you wear, of course, is the minister responsible for housing. And so that's where I'm wondering, you say we have to move as quickly as possible. We haven't been moving fast enough. What has gone wrong there? Well, uh, I think we're okay. You know, I mean, obviously, we would like to move faster, but we are uh, on schedule to have enough spaces to bring everybody inside within 90 days. Um, And that's pretty good when you think about the fact that um, we are prevented uh, from simply providing mats on the floor somewhere uh, by court decisions that are really clear. If you want to force somebody um, not to sleep in a park, you need to provide decent and adequate shelter. So you won't get an injunction unless you're doing that. But more than the court standard that's set out, um, we also know that um, moving people inside Uh, you need to have a reasonable accommodation for them. Otherwise, they move back outside, back to another park, or you simply shift the problem around if we don't have enough trained staff to uh, ensure that people are housed and that they're supported in that housing, they're going to move out uh, right back into a park. So, uh, you know, from the previous encampments in Victoria and Vancouver, Oppenheimer Park, Topaz, Pandora, 85 to 90% of the folks from those encampments remain housed today. Um, And so those, uh, to my mind, are success stories where people went inside and stayed housed um, and uh, underlines the challenge that we face around uh, making sure that we repeat that success here, that we don't uh, decamp the site and hope that everybody's going to stay on a mat on the floor at BC Place, whatever folks have in mind. Um, We we actually need to um, provide options to keep people inside um, that they're going to want to stay inside because uh, the housing is better than they were experiencing in the park. Has there been enough cooperation here? Because I know there's layers, right? It's in a park, which is the Vancouver Park Board, but also the city of Vancouver. And then you've got the province, you know, looking after housing. Has communication been a problem? Has there been enough cooperation? Well, we had a rugged start uh, with the encampment, uh, no question. Uh, the different levels in the city of Vancouver of a separate park board that, uh, you know, I mean, they're they're a group that is uh, together to manage parks for recreation, not to respond to um, large group encampments akin to a refugee camp. That is not what the park board is staffed or prepared for. So uh, that's part of the challenge, the division between them and the city of Vancouver in terms of who has responsibility. Um, The uh, role that the provincial government has uh, to provide housing, uh, which we're stepping up on, but the need to ensure that if we do provide enough spaces for people to come inside, that the park board is going to do their part as well to um, actually apply for an injunction and get it so that we can ensure that people do move out of the park and do move into housing if that's necessary. And uh, fortunately with Oppenheimer, uh, you know, we, we had some good success in getting people outside, uh, getting people inside, but um, you know, we do need that level of cooperation as well. And so, Although uh, it was rugged early, uh, everybody is lined up now. In December, we heard from the park board that they were prepared to apply for those injunctions if the housing was in place and the city's on side and they're working really hard with us to get those spaces in place for um, the end of April. And, uh, and the goal is people are like, well, why can't you move people in, you know, in smaller groups sooner? Right. And there are vulnerable people who are being moved off the site. 
uh, into housing. But my concern is that um, the homeless population in Vancouver is significantly larger than the population in the camp. And so if you move people in small groups, the odds of the camp backfilling of more people uh, immediately after you move people out is very high. And our goal is to actually close the encampment, not simply to rotate the residents. So we want to get everybody in at the same time and uh, and close the encampment. Does what happened this week, though? Does that kind of heighten the the tension around this, the schedule? Do you feel a sense of urgency to get this done now? It does, and it's frustrating because you know we are limited by the fact that we need the spaces to be appropriate and set up, and we need the staff to support people in the housing, and that. It just takes that this much time. It takes those ninety days to get that set up and get it uh, to get it in place. And we also know during those ninety days, there is a really significant risk of more tragic events happening at the site, which could include overdose, fire, um, uh, death, and injury. And uh, you know, there's not a lot that we can do other than support uh, the Vancouver Fire, Vancouver Police, Vancouver Bylaw parks bylaw and and whatever our our partners at the municipal level need in order to minimize the risk of harm between then and now. So things that we've done include set up a warming tent, uh, showers, bathrooms, potable water to minimize the risk of of a disease outbreak uh, to make sure that people can stay clean and um, can, uh, can get themselves clean and can warm up without having to bring propane tanks or other potential flammable items into their tents. So we're trying to manage uh, the risk of injury and tragedy. But that's all we're doing because this is not a safe site and so we're moving as quickly as we can. Okay, so still on track though for April. That's right. By the end of April, we expect to have enough places to get everybody inside, which is the trigger for the park board to, um, in, according to their uh, uh, declaration, to apply for an injunction so that we can have a managed decampment. All right. Well, Minister Eby, thank you for your time on that. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate that. David Eby is not only our Attorney General, also the Minister for Housing, but explaining the difficulties and the challenges around moving people out of that Strathcona Park and encampment, clearly very heightened this week because of everything that happened there. But uh, now we can understand the challenges, and they're still on target to do all that at the end of April, though sure would be great if they could move that up for everybody, for the people at the park and for everybody else who has concerns too.